0: When well, in my house growing up, my parents never, ever drank alcohol. In fact, if my mom would even cook with red wine or something like that, and obviously the cooking process cooks the alcohol out. She would sort of like jokingly say as we're eating this, well, there is a little bit of red wine in it, as if there was supposed to be some kind of effect on us or something like that. And the reason that That total abstinence from alcohol, my parents were teetotalers, if you're not familiar with that word, that's someone who never, ever drinks alcohol. That was my experience in my home growing up, and the reason that that was the case is because my dad's father was an alcoholic. He died in 1991 when I was a freshman in high school. He died of liver cancer. He was 71, so relatively young, and he had been an alcoholic most of his life. And so when we would hang out with my dad's family, I would see the opposite end of the spectrum. In my own family, I saw total abstinence. And in my dad's family, I saw alcohol abuse. I witnessed it with my own, with my own eyes. Whenever we went to my dad's family's house, everyone was drinking. In fact, I remember once at a wedding, my cousin, who was either... She might have been underage, but if she wasn't, she was like 21... She got very drunk and got into a fist fight with her mother, my aunt, my, my dad's sister. And my grandma, who is the sweetest woman I've ever met. She's still alive. She's 97 or 98. She, she like, dragged my cousin home and locked her in the basement <laughs> so she could sleep it off and calm down. I've never seen my grandma so angry. I've never seen her angry, actually, except that one time. And so when you, when you grow up in a context where you see alcohol engaged in only one of two ways, okay? You see it either completely avoided or you see it abused. You can only draw one conclusion about the nature of alcohol. It's inherently evil, I mean, that's the only conclusion you can draw. I didn't realize that I'd drawn that conclusion until many years later. But functionally, that was the conclusion that I had drawn because you either have to stay away from it completely and never ever touch it, or the people who do, their lives are a disaster. So I I continued to move through. By the way, I want to say one thing about about alcohol abuse and addiction because today we're talking about self-control and alcohol. We're we're doing a little... kind of a three-week series on self-control because it's such a theme in the book of Titus, which we'll read in a minute. But we're not talking about addiction today. We're talking about just alcohol use because I just want to be honest and say, I am not an expert on addiction. I'm not an expert on, on alcohol addiction. I'm not an expert on drug addiction. That is a very complicated matter that frankly, I would say, if, if you happen to be in that situation, you, you're going to need some help beyond what just the normal church family is gonna be able to provide for you. Now, the normal church family's gotta also meet you there and help you and minister Jesus to you and communicate the gospel to you, okay? So I know a handful of people who 12 Steps have been very, very helpful for them. I see it most helpful when it's done in tandem with life in in gospel community, okay? So if you're in a place of addiction, I just wanna say there's tons of good news coming for you here in just a minute. But that's a really, like, particular issue that that I'm not an expert on, and I witnessed addiction in my father's family growing up, so I know a little bit about it. As I became an adult, and particularly when I got into ministry, I, through the scriptures, was convicted that believers did have the freedom to drink alcohol, but I felt for myself it would be most wise for me to not personally partake in alcohol because of my leadership position. So it put me in kind of this weird zone where I felt like I was well, it was able to do it, but I was very rarely ever in a context where I could because I wanted to be a good example to people. So therefore, what, pretty much what it amounted to is I would only drink alcohol if I was way off in a far context where nobody knew me. So the first time I ever had a beer, I was 22 years old, I was in Boston at the Bull and Finch Pub, which is the bar that inspired Cheers, the TV show, and had a Sam Adams. Not a bad first beer experience, right? Some of you probably can't remember your first beer experience. So I, I was in that kind of weird zone for a while, and then we moved to Tacoma, and I'm I'm leading a church, and I'm still in this same position, and there's people in our church family and even on our leadership team who feel the freedom to consume alcohol, and at that point, I just said, "Yeah, I'm just not going to do it at all. And then in 2007, the church I was leading merges with SOMA. And at the time, SOMA actually had a reputation as being the party church back in 2007. A few of you around then, you might remember that. And so one of my first conversations with, with one of the leaders at the time, I literally said, so can you help me understand what is the role of alcohol in the life of SOMA? And it was actually not a helpful conversation, um, unfortunately, because I really do believe that, that alcohol plays a life plays a role in the life of a church family and definitely was playing a, life, a role in the life of SOMA at the time. But that merger and some of those like cultural realities where I was immediately sort of thrust into this context where, where people are really enjoying this freedom well beyond what I thought was normal and even healthy, I was really forced to begin grappling with what I believed about alcohol. And my second month uh, as a part of SOMA, June of 2007, I was helping lead a community garden project on Hilltop. And so I would go there day after day and help prepare the, the space for this big, huge project we were all going to do on one particular Saturday back in 2007. And part of what I was doing as I was there on, on site was working with some of the neighbors because they knew what we were up to and they were wanting to help revitalize this community garden. Which, by the way, it's on L Street and it's still a functional community garden, which is amazing. And so one of these neighbors, he worked he worked graveyard. And so he would take a nap for a while and then come out like in the afternoon and he would help me. And he was an older gentleman and I got to know him a little bit. He didn't talk much, but you know, we had a little bit of a connection. We worked together a few days and it was really, it was pretty warm out that year in June. And so we're working together one afternoon and he comes out there and we're digging and doing a bunch of stuff. And he's like, he's like, Hey, uh, want a cold beer? I'm like, um, no, no, thanks. That's all right. I'm good. And so we work for a while longer, 10, 15 minutes longer, and he's like, uh, hey, Hey, uh, want a cold beer? And I'm not exaggerating. That's exactly how I was saying it. Like, no lead up. No, hey, you know, you want to hang out or talk? He's like, want a cold beer? I'm like, no, thanks. I'm good. So then he disappears. And he comes back. He's got two beers in his hands. And he just hands one to me. He didn't even ask me a third time. He just hands it to me. And so I'm like, and I had already been really wrestling with this. And so I thought, you know what, Holy Spirit, thanks for making it really clear to me what I'm supposed to do. So I, I popped I pop the top off, and that was my first Budweiser ever. That was also a memorable experience, but for a whole different reason than the Sam Adams experience. It may have been my last Budweiser, actually. Um, so I had that beer with that guy, and that was really the beginning of me saying okay i got to get super serious about this so i'm like flipping through the scriptures trying to understand what what is the balance between freedom and wisdom because i think for most of my my young my young life i had really i had said i believed in freedom but had really gone onto the sort of wisdom side of things which if you only have wisdom and no freedom that's a form of bondage because even in that alcohol in a sense controls you there's a lot of fear there's total avoidance, and I'm not saying everyone has to drink alcohol, but if there's an attitude that says, wow, that's like really bad, that's not freedom, that's bondage. And then on the other side, I had witnessed a lot of freedom with no wisdom. And that's not freedom either. That's also bondage. So what I want to suggest today as we dive into this sort of mini-series within a series on self-control, is that self-control is the intersection of freedom and wisdom. Self-control is the intersection of freedom and wisdom. Self-control is where you express your freedom in Christ with wisdom. And so there's no bondage, but it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, and we walk that out. We're gonna talk about Self-control, specifically as it relates to alcohol and drugs. I'm going to talk a little bit about drugs today. And then the next couple weeks, we're going to talk about self-control and food. And there's two reasons why we're going to talk about this. First of all, as a church family, I don't believe we've done a very good job as leaders of teaching on self-control. Last fall, we confessed a bunch of different wounds and sins of the past. One of them was emphasizing our freedom in Christ but not the need for wisdom in expressing our freedoms. And as I was studying about self-control this week and talked with Randy about it, we realized self-control is a basic discipleship issue. It's a basic discipleship issue to the degree that if we don't learn how to be self-controlled with, with some, of these, some of these tangible created things in our lives, it will definitely hinder our growth as disciples and it will disqualify us for any kind of leadership whatsoever. So like self-control is just, it's, it's basic, it's fundamental. And we've done almost no teaching and training on it, which is unfortunate. The second reason we're going to talk about it is because of Titus chapter 2. I want to read verses 1 through 15. I want to read the whole, the whole chapter of Titus chapter 2 and listen for the phrase self-control. So we've been in chapter two here for a while, and the whole idea is healthy family, that Paul's explaining what it looks like to live out your theology. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. That is the second reference to alcohol in the book of Titus, which is another reason we're talking about it. In chapter 1, verse 7, we found that an elder was not to be a drunkard. The older women are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opportunity, so that an opponent, excuse me, may, may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are, are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Four. Here's the reason for all this. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The NIV says, teaching us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The theme of Titus is grace teaches us to do good works. Grace teaches us to do good works. And explicitly in Titus chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, Paul says that the good news of the grace of of God teaches us to be self-controlled. Well, how does the gospel, how does grace train us to live a self-controlled life? In a couple ways. We have to remember the context to which Paul is writing. This is going back several weeks to the beginning of this this study in Titus. Remember, there's two different contexts, two different realities that are going on in Crete that Paul's writing to. First was a worldly mindset. The worldly mindset says, I will do what I want and no one can tell me how to live my life. That sound familiar? I will do what I want and no one can tell me how to live my life. And so in terms of self-control... The gospel addresses that mindset because that mindset is saying, particularly with alcohol, I will use alcohol however I please. And very often I think alcohol ends up getting used as a source of satisfaction, as a source of comfort, as a source of peace, as an escape. And that is the worldly mindset. It says, no one can tell me how to live my life. I'm going to take these created things and I'm going to use them how I want to use them. And this mindset is obviously very pervasive in our culture, particularly with alcohol use. I didn't even look up stats because I'm sure all of us know multiple stories of people whose lives have been ruined by alcohol. Drug and alcohol abuse ruins millions of lives and costs billions of dollars to address. But if you're that person this morning, and I think to some degree all of us have a piece of that in our hearts, that no one's going to tell me what to do and I'm going to use God's stuff how I want to use it, right? Here's how the grace of God meets you. The grace of God comes to you and me as rebellious usually hurting people who are trying to cope with the pain that we've experienced in the past through misuse of drugs and alcohol, the grace of God comes to you. The grace of God comes to you and says, first of all, you are not alone. You're not alone in your abuse and in your misuse and in your rebellious posture. Because you know what? There's only one person in the room today who has lived a completely self-controlled life. There's only one person in this room who's lived a completely self-controlled life, and his name is Jesus Christ. There's no self-righteous judgment today. So if you come in and you have a history of drug and alcohol abuse, you're currently in a place of drug and alcohol abuse, or maybe you're just that person who you know has got to have one every night at 530 just so you can get through the evening. If that's where you're at, there's no self-righteous judgment today. Because Jesus' perfect record of self-control is available to you by faith. See, you get to have Jesus' sobriety. Do you know Jesus was never drunk? He was never drunk. His drunkenness is a sin. We'll talk about that in a minute. And Jesus never sinned. So therefore, Jesus was never drunk, even though he drank. And we're going to talk about that in a minute, too. You get Jesus' sobriety given to you as a gift, as part of Jesus' righteousness. So when we come to Jesus, we put our faith and trust in him, we get honest with him about our needs, our brokenness and our failure. It's in that place of humility and brokenness that we receive the grace of God and we receive his righteousness. And then of course you can hopefully start to hear how then out of that, if you're a recipient of God's crazy grace and you get the gift of Jesus' sobriety, hopefully then you're motivated to say, oh my goodness, Look at what God's done for me. I don't want to have a rebellious attitude. I don't want to say to God, I'll do whatever I want with your stuff because I've experienced his grace. But there's another context to which Paul's writing, and it's the religious mindset, the false teachers who are saying you got to obey the law and get circumcised if you want to be right with God. And this mindset says, I will prove myself, I will make up for my sin, I will earn everything. I'm better than people who have no self-control. And you know what? This is where I lived for a while. It's where I lived for a while. And the church has done a pretty sad job of communicating a clear gospel when it comes to self-control. Sadly, the church has done a good job of distorting the gospel when it comes to self-control. We've made it about rules, about legalism, about self-righteousness. You know, years ago in Chicago, I heard a street preacher preaching downtown with a bullhorn, and he was preaching about the sinfulness of smoking cigarettes. That was kind of his main deal, and I walked away. I was so disturbed. I was, I was, I was pretty upset, actually, and I came back later, and he was singing the same song, saying the exact same stuff, and even though he was, he was at least twice my age, I was like 21 at the time, I interrupted him, and I challenged him. I said, you can't preach that. That's not true. You don't know what's going on. You don't even know why they're doing these things. And he actually went on to say that he was sinless. And that's when I knew the conversation probably wasn't going to go very far. And I walked away. He didn't listen to me. But it really made an impression on me to say, like, when we start talking about this kind of stuff, there's plenty of Christian people out there who want to say, if you do this ever, you're, you're the worst person in the world. And that's a self-righteous attitude. And man, it's so easy. Listen, by God's grace, I've never been drunk in my life. It's easy for me to grab onto that and go, man, you, all of you who've like abused alcohol, especially as adults, like, what are you thinking? What's your problem? It's so easy for me to go there. But you know what I need to be reminded of? I need to be reminded that my self-control, first of all, it's not perfect, and it doesn't save me. It doesn't save me. I'm just as broken and in need as the person who's addicted to drugs and alcohol in this room this morning. The, 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 the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I come with my self-righteous pride and my, my filthy rags And you come with your broken record and your messed up life, and we both need Jesus. We both need Jesus. And so the grace of God, I experience the grace of God in my life, and I say, wow, I want to be self-controlled, but not as a way to save me. I want to be self-controlled in response to what Jesus Christ has already done. So let's talk about. I felt like it was important to lay that gospel foundation before we wade into this because I know for a fact there's people in this room who've struggled with alcohol addiction in their life. And I don't want there to be one ounce of condemnation coming across because in Jesus Christ, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. Now, there's a big, wide open door for repentance and faith and greater intimacy with Jesus, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So, I want to talk about freedom and alcohol first, and then we'll talk a little bit about wisdom and alcohol. So, back to 2007, after I had my cold beer with the guy in the community garden, I start flipping through the scriptures, and here's what I found. I found that alcohol was not just sanctioned, but even commanded to be used as a drink offering in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Particularly Exodus chapter twenty nine and Numbers chapter fifteen describe the reality that literally at least twice a day there's a drink offering of wine poured out before the Lord, and you think, wait a second, if God's commanding that wine be poured out before the Lord, how is it inherently evil? And it's, I, I, it just started to, to to mess with my mind right away, and then you continue to flip through and you get to the to the Psalms and the prophets and you find that provision of wine for personal enjoyment and as a drink offering was a sign of God's blessing. So when there's plenty of wine in Israel, guess what? People would interpret that as the blessing of God. And on the flip side, a loss of wine, both for personal enjoyment and as a drink offering, was clearly a sign of God's judgment. And you can read about that in Joel chapter 1. Now, the kicker for me was this. The third thing I discovered, an abundance of amazing wine is a sign of the arrival of Messiah's kingdom. I read this in Isaiah 25, and I could hardly believe it. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. That's like saying it's, it's the good stuff, okay? Okay of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. How do you know that God has shown up to save his people and to begin establish his kingdom? Because there's a beautiful, amazing, abundant feast filled with rich food and the best wine. That's how you know Messiah showed up and the kingdom started. If you want to read more about that, you can check out Isaiah 62, Joel 3, Amos 9, and Zechariah 9. When I think of like what are the signs of the arrival of Messiah's kingdom, I usually think of Isaiah 61, which is quoted in Luke 4, when Jesus says, "You know what? I'm going to bind up the brokenhearted, and I'm going to preach the gospel to the poor, and the lame are going to walk, and the deaf are going to hear, and the blind are going to see." I think of that kind of stuff. But the best wine, well, what's interesting is in John's Gospel, the very first miracle of Jesus, John records in the second chapter, and it's Jesus. Showing up at a wedding feast, and they run out of wine. And this is in his, kind of in his neighborhood, not in Nazareth, but in a nearby town. So he's really feeling for these folks. It would have been super embarrassing, big, major social faux pas to run out of wine at a wedding feast. So when the, and Jesus turns water into wine, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Hey, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then they bring out the cheap stuff. A three-buck chuck comes out at the end. But you've kept the good wine till now. And this, the first of his signs, key Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And by the way, it was somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine that Jesus produced. It was an abundance of the best wine. And see, John uses that word sign in his gospel specifically to mark the miracles where you and I as readers and as his listeners, you're supposed to see those and go, this is an indicator that Jesus is really the Messiah. So the very first miracle that John writes about is how Jesus turned water to wine and John is pointing a big arrow, calling it a sign, pointing a big arrow at this miracle saying, this is how you know that the Messiah has come. He's thinking about Isaiah chapter 25. Honestly, that one piece right there was the biggest thing for me. It's a sign of the arrival of Messiah's kingdom. Furthermore, in the Gospels, we find that Jesus drank wine, Luke chapter 7. He was actually accused of being a drunk. And then Jesus, Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, at the Last Supper, tells his followers that we will drink wine in God's kingdom. So to summarize, 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5 says this, everything created by God is good. Everything created by God is good. And I think the whole scope of the Bible from almost Genesis, Exodus, to the book of Revelation, we find that this is a good thing created by God, it's a sign of his blessing. He's given it to his people for enjoyment, and it's a sign of the arrival of Messiah's kingdom. It's a good thing. It's not inherently evil. It's a blessing. It's a good thing to be, create, to, to be enjoyed. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, I should just say, in quoting that verse, I'm not saying that every Christian has to drink wine. The Bible says it's not to be rejected. You've got to work that out. We could talk about 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, the conscience passages, but you've got to work that out, okay? But the point here is that wine, alcohol has been created by God and it's good. Now let's talk about alcohol and wisdom. Only two points on this one. First of all, drunkenness is thoroughly and universally condemned in the Bible. There's 20 verses I could quote. I'm going to quote Ephesians 5.18, the most well-known one. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, kids, that means, like, it's a really bad thing that you shouldn't do. (laughs) And it makes a big mess. I have to share this story. Speaking of alcohol making a big mess, so my first year of college, I went to a state university in Nebraska before I transferred to Moody Bible Institute. And not surprisingly, you know, 17, 18 year old kids, state university, everyone's, you know, getting drunk on the weekends and that kind of thing. And this is my first experience. I've been to a few parties in high school, but like, this is my first experience being around a lot of drunk people. <laughs> and this one poor kid, he ends up, we have this shared bathroom for, you know, for the guys. And he ends up like drunk, passed out on the floor. He's throwing up right into the drain on the floor. And this is like my first, I don't know, second month in college. And I remember my dad saying to me, hey, listen, Abe, if you ever want to know anything about drugs and alcohol and the effect that they have on you, just ask me. I'll be happy to tell you. Because when he went off to the Navy, he got super involved in the, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll, hippie movement, lifestyle. I mean, he just dove head first. So he had plenty of stories. And he said, if you ever want to know what it's like, just ask me. I'll tell you. And honestly, I took his word for it. It's God's grace. But when I got to college and I saw, you know, my buddy like passed out drunk on the floor in a pool of vomit, I thought, that's debauchery, all right. I don't need a clearer picture than that. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You've got to get the contrast here. Be filled with the Spirit. The principle here is don't be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. Listen to that again. Don't be controlled by anything other other than the Holy Spirit. Don't be controlled by anything other than the Holy Spirit. So the principle certainly applies to any drug that alters your physical or mental state. Okay, and I'm talking outside of healthy medicinal use. Okay, I'm talking about abuse. Any drug that alters your physical or mental state hinders you from being controlled only by the Holy Spirit. So therefore, I'm not going to list off a long list of drugs, but I do want to just say in light of culturally what's going on, particularly here in our own state, it certainly includes marijuana. It certainly includes marijuana. There are good and helpful uses for many, many drugs, including opioid painkillers like oxycodone, And honestly, it seems on the research that I've read and the stories I've heard and people I've talked to firsthand, it seems like marijuana does have a healthy medicinal use. Though since it's become legal in our state, honestly, I can't even go for a walk in my neighborhood anymore at night. I mean, it's like, it's everywhere. And what really scares me is how often I smell it when I'm driving. Like, the car in front of me is the only place this could be coming from. This is bad news. But in both of those cases, if you've got healthy use of, you know, opioid painkillers, marijuana, in both those cases, it does seem wise to bring that into the light of your community, at least talk to a few people about it and say, hey, listen, you know what? I'm on this really strong opioid painkiller, and the, the potential for this to be addictive, we all know from reading the news, is extremely high. So can I just have some accountability? Could you just ask me, hey, are you taking your prescription according to what's been prescribed by your doctor? That would just be a helpful question for me because I need help with self-control. And it seems the same with, with marijuana because it's so easy for those things to move into inappropriate, unhelpful, dependent abuse. So that's the first thing. Drunkenness means we're not being filled with the Spirit. Second of all, Scripture's clear about the dangers of alcohol. Again, dozens of verses. Proverbs 20, verse 1. Proverbs 23, verses 29 and 30, you can look those up. But the Bible makes it clear that alcohol and drugs will ruin your life, they'll ruin your relationships, they'll ruin your career, they'll ruin your finances, they'll ruin your marriage, they'll ruin your reputation. So do you feel the tension? Here's this thing that's good, created by God, a sign of the Messianic kingdom, and oh, by the way, it'll ruin your life if you abuse it. Wow, do we need self-control. Wow, do we need wisdom and freedom. And so Paul says to the elders, older, older men, younger women, younger men, and to all of us in light of the gospel in chapter 2 verse 12, be self-controlled. All the uses of that word in Titus are from the same Greek word family, and it literally means to save the mind, to save the mind. So what Paul's saying is, look, You got to keep your wits about you. When it comes to food, which we'll talk more about, alcohol, drugs, I think it goes to tobacco, it goes to caffeine, any good thing created by God that is a substance that can alter your physical and mental state, guess what? Don't lose your head over it. Don't lose your mind over it. Save your mind. Don't lose it over these things. Keep your wits about you when it comes to alcohol and food and drugs and tobacco and caffeine. Keep your wits about you. Paul says your mind and your thinking and your sensibilities, which obviously control your actions, those things must be influenced by the fact that you're a redeemed and free child of God by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit not merely by our fleshly desires and impulses. So I wanna give you three questions that you can ask when it comes to self-control. I wanna encourage you to particularly apply these to your use of alcohol, your engagement with alcohol, okay? And I understand there's probably a huge spectrum in here. I just, and that's why we're not gonna lay down some specific rule or anything like that. You've gotta work it out with the Holy Spirit, but also work it out in community, okay? But here's a couple questions that might be helpful. First of all, am I mastered by it? Am I mastered by it? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, the context there is sexuality. But Paul says, all things are lawful for me, which was kind of a, a famous saying in Corinth where they end up way on the freedom side of things. Hey, all things are lawful for me. And Paul's like, yeah, that's true, but I will not be dominated by anything. Some translations say I will not be mastered by anything. So listen for this phrase in your life. I must have blank. I have to have this. I must have that in order to function. I must have this in order to get by. That's being mastered by something. Now, again, I'm not talking about prescription drugs used in a healthy way. Some of you have physical ailments where you have to have prescription medication in order to function properly. That's a different thing, okay? I'm talking about sinful, unhealthy, abusive dependence, which could look as innocuous as, you know, I just, I'd just i have to have my 5:30, 6 o'clock glass of wine just to get through the evening. I just have to. That could be being mastered by something, okay? So for all of us, when it comes to your engagement with alcohol, if you believe that you have the freedom to, to drink alcohol... I really want to encourage this, and this is something I don't think we've maybe ever said. I think maybe I've said it once in our church family, but it hasn't been said enough. Know your limits. Know your limits. Come into every situation knowing this is the max amount of alcohol I can consume. Because if you don't make that decision ahead of time, what's going to happen? You'll likely, like, your ability to make a good choice diminishes with each drink that you have. Okay? Okay. So decide ahead of time, know your limits, do some research, err on the side of caution. I found a graph that was published by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Okay, it's part of the federal government. They're pushing for lowering the legal limit from 0.08 to 0.05. Okay, it's crazy. In Europe, the drinking age is lower, but they're really super strict about driving while intoxicated, super strict about it. So that graph, and you can find it online, it basically says that any adult, you're legally drunk after a few drinks. You're legally drunk after a few drinks. So I'm going to say there's actually two ways you need to know your limit. One, you just need to know your limit in any kind of social context with alcohol. But if you're driving, it's a different limit that you need to know. And I'm just begging you, I'm begging you to be beyond careful in that area. Okay? So that's the first question. Am I mastered by it? Secondly, am I regularly thankful for it? Am I regularly thankful for it? Remember 1 Timothy 4, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. If you find yourself, and this is going to get brought up again next week with food because that really, I'm super convicted by this thought. If we slip into entitlement or demand, or we feel we've somehow earned something, we use, we use things as a reward, I think we've moved away from thankfulness. Because thankfulness is built on the assumption that I've received something I don't deserve. Versus, oh, I worked hard today, therefore I deserve this. Or, oh, of course I have this coming to me. Of course you're going to go home after the gathering and find food in your refrigerator. Of course you're going to. It's like, no no, that's entitlement. We've got to be thankful. And thankfulness, my friends, it, it kills discontent. It kills, I think it helps kill addiction. It helps say, you know what? I'm so thankful for this thing. I don't want to abuse it. I'm so glad to have it. So ask yourself, am I regularly thankful for it? And then finally, am I worshiping Jesus or am I worshiping alcohol? Romans 14, verse 23 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Here's a question I started asking myself years ago about food, but I think it applies to alcohol, certainly. It applies to TV. It applies to caffeine, tobacco. Am I doing this in response to the gospel? Am I doing this from a place of faith? Am I taking this and receiving it and going, This is a gift from you, God. I'm so thankful for. Oh, it's so delicious. I'm enjoying this right now. Or am I doing it instead of the gospel? So am I doing it because of the gospel? Or am I doing it instead of the gospel? Which is to say, oh, I need an escape. I need some comfort. I need some satisfaction. I need some peace. There's no Jesus in that. There's no Jesus in that. And in that situation, we have actually We've actually pushed Jesus out and we've replaced him with a created thing, which Paul says in Romans chapter 1 is the essence of idolatry, where we worship the creation instead of the creator. So where do we go for satisfaction, comfort, peace, escape, even a sense of reward? Where do we go? Well, listen to this invitation in Isaiah chapter 55. Come, Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And I know there's a lot of us in the room who are thirsty this morning. In fact, I think every one of us is thirsty every single day. Your soul is thirsty. You want more. You want peace. You want a sense of being loved. You want a sense of satisfaction. You want a sense of being covered. You want a sense of safety. And this is, this is God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and earth, saying to you, come. If you're thirsty, come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. See, that's the grace of God. What he offers you comes without price. It's free. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? And when we run to created things like tobacco and alcohol and drugs, we're saying that thing is going to do it for me. And the Bible says you're spending your money and your time and your energy on that which does not actually satisfy you. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David, which is a reference to the Davidic covenant, which says that Messiah is going to come and he's going to save his people, which is why in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And then in John chapter four, to the woman at the well, Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Do you see, Jesus is the better wine. When Isaiah 55 says, come buy from me wine and milk, God's actually saying, come get a piece of me. Come get some of me. Take me in. So listen, in the evening when you're lonely and you think, oh man, I'm just, you know what? I don't know what else to do. I'm just going to have a glass of wine. I'm going to have a beer. Go to Jesus instead. Sit with him. Open the Psalms. Pour out your heart. Go for a walk. Talk and pray. Grab Jesus by the hand and say, Jesus, I'm, I'm alone and I'm scared and I'm hurting. Can you come and minister to me, please? You're the better wine. That's what Jesus is offering. And here's the crazy thing. Do you know, what was Jesus' better wine? What was the thing that gave him peace and satisfaction and and comfort? What was his safety? What was the thing he went to at night when he was alone? It was the love of the Father. That was Jesus' better wine. Well, guess what? On the cross, he gave that up so that you could be offered the best wine ever, which is him. Jesus took the cup of God's wrath, gave away the cup of intimacy with God, so you could have the true cup, the best wine, intimacy with Jesus Christ. So in light of that, regardless of where we're at on the spectrum, whether we're self-righteous, prideful, like me, I've never been drunk, I'm better than you, or whether we're, you know, just using wine here and there to sort of get by and get through the tough times, or whether we're completely controlled and addicted to it, Jesus Christ says, I will forgive you, I will cleanse you, I will save you, and I will give you myself. Now, I have a hunch that most of us are sensing the Holy Spirit speak to us in some way on this issue, Okay, because there's all kinds of people in the room. But this has really broad application. Okay, so what we're gonna do for the next few minutes is we're gonna get together in, in groups. We did this a few weeks ago. I know it's gonna be a challenge for some of you, and if you're not comfortable talking or sharing, you can just hang out in the group. And if you're super uncomfortable, you can hang out in your seat. But really encourage us to get into groups together, pretty small, like four, no bigger than five, And if the Spirit of God has convicted you of anything, like I need to confess my self-righteousness and my pride in this area or I was blind about the goodness of alcohol or whatever, confess or, or all the way to, you know what? I've been mastered by alcohol and I believe Jesus Christ can set me free. And he might set you free today and it might take 25 years, but I believe Jesus Christ can set me free. Confess in these groups if the Spirit has led you to anything and then when you're ready, then go to the table, and someone in the group, someone in the group, please communicate the truth of the gospel to anyone who confessed anything. So if you say, "You know what? I've been abusing alcohol. I've been looking to creative things instead of Jesus to give me satisfaction and comfort. That's where I run to. It's my refuge. It's my hiding place. Then you take the bread and the wine, you say, "Here's the best wine. Here's the best bread, the bread of life." Not only does Jesus take away all your sins, but he gives himself to you. May you find your comfort and your refuge in Jesus alone. Minister the gospel. Minister truth to one another in light of the confessions, okay? So, Brittany, if you want to come up, i are going to play some music. Let's, let's stand together, okay? I'm going to have you move around. it's going to be hard. You're going to have to, again, I believe the Spirit's at work here, okay? So I'm going to pray for you before you go into your groups. But try to get with four or five people. We will have some music plans. If you're super uncomfortable getting with other people, you can sing. But then we will all move to the table. I won't come back up and prompt you to the table, so just go when you're ready. We've got got some good time to work with here. Go when you're ready, and then I'll come back at the end and uh, lead us into the last song. So Holy Spirit, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you that he meets every person in this room right where they're at on this issue of self-control. So Holy Spirit, right now I pray that you would convict hearts, that you bring clarity. Scripture says confess your sins one to another. So there's really power in bringing things out into the light. And I believe, Spirit, you're tugging on some heartstrings right now and People are probably nervous about, oh, what am I gonna say? Do I need to say this spirit? You take care of that. You lead as you wanna lead. And I thank you that on the other end is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brittany reminded us earlier of the great grace of God. We can go a couple weeks without thinking much about him. And we say, oh God, look, there you are. And he says, yes, I've been here all along. Thank you that you're waiting with grace to meet us, to cleanse us, and to offer yourself fully to us in relationship. Jesus, I pray we would look only to you, only to you for our comfort, our satisfaction, our joy. And finally, Jesus, I pray that you would heal wounds. Some of us are coming in with deep wounds from the past, serious brokenness that has led us to a place of coping through drugs or alcohol. We need you to heal us. We need you to heal us. And if there's anyone who wants to declare their faith in Jesus today for the first time, you can do it in the group. or You can come up front and talk to me in the next few minutes. So Spirit, move during this time.